and studying Daniel 8 this morning. Um, That's the introduction before the introduction. And truly, as I was praying about this very text and trying to figure out how to illustrate and discuss the message of Daniel 8, I could not have asked for a better providential introduction than the circumstances that we face nowadays in this very present moment with such turbulence and disruption. And in that way, you could think of it in such a manner that as we think about this life, it's all about anticipation. It is all about how we are expecting and what we believe is going to happen in this world. And it's based upon that anticipation, that expectation, that our lives are conducted in such a manner. Just to put it simply, endpoints determine midpoints. Endpoints determine midpoints. When you have a goal at the end, that determines your present strategy and the moment. You have this in businesses. They have a goal. They have a so-called vision. And so they come up with a strategic plan to get them there. You have this in families with their finance. If they want an end goal of a vacation, which sounds wonderful, then they have a midpoint to try to strategize and plan and save, etc., to get them there. It's in athletics. You have an end point, which is hopefully to win and not to lose. And therefore, you do a lot of things in the present to get you there, even in school. This is why people pick certain majors, because they have an end goal of some kind of occupation, some kind of vocation, and they pick a major that they believe will get them there. End points determine midpoints. And sometimes in our lives, as we think about this complicated word, which is also tied with a complicated subject, notion that is eschatology, People say, I don't even understand why we have to study these things. In fact, according to your eschatology, we won't even be there for most of it. We'll be raptured. So why bother worry about anything at all? I totally understand. I totally understand. And a reason, not the only one, but a reason why eschatology matters is because endpoints determine midpoints. What you believe about the end determines how you live, what you anticipate, your perspective, your attitude right now. It is absolutely fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating that in recent days, if you go on social media, and I recommend that you don't, but if you did and you surveyed around, you would see right now a rise, particularly among young people, of what we call post millennialism, post-millennialism. And just by way of review of the different views of eschatology, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, all those kinds of ideas, labels, are discussing how people view the kingdom relative to Christ's return. Does Christ return before the kingdom happens? That would be pre-millennialism. If you believe that there is not a physical kingdom at all, that would be Ah, millennialism. And if you believe that Christ comes after the kingdom is established on earth, that's called post-millennialism. Now, some people chidingly remark that they're pan-millennialists because they just want to see it pan out. And then there are others, and then, then there are others who are millennials. And those are the people who believe they are the kingdom. In any case, there are different views on eschatology. Postmillennialism, which I just referenced, believes that Christ comes after his kingdom is established on earth, and he will use people like you and me to establish his physical, perfect reign on this planet. Now, if you stop and think about it, that we, as mere human beings and mere mortals, and fallible and finite people would be so successful to take over the entire world and make it all Christian is pretty far-fetched, especially after this weekend, and even more, especially after World War II. Who brought in the kingdom then? And so after World War II, post-millennialism was a laughingstock. It was ridiculous. No one even gave it a second thought. But now it's on the rise. And you might say, why? Why? It's very simple. 
here's a part of it, maybe not the whole, most likely not the whole, but part of it. Young people are angry. They're angry. They are seeing the fall of Western civilization. They are seeing the detachment of our culture with anything that is Christian. They are witnessing the degradation of that which was considered normal to that which was considered neutral, and now anything biblical is considered negative. It is considered a moral wrong. They don't like to be the underdog when before, in their parents' generation, they were dominant, and they might have been even a remote majority. They don't like it that paganism is taking over. They don't like how that feels. And so, in light of all of this collapse around them and their frustration within it, they want to stand up and oppose those kinds of social movements. And what eschatology gives you the best excuse to fight post-millennialism because you're supposed to take over the world. You're supposed to fight. This isn't what's supposed to happen. You should resist with all your heart. And again, we are not talking about just normal faithfulness, and we are not talking about how we as individuals continue to remain obedient to the word of God and be witnesses and salt and light and all this. We are talking about something different. We are talking about a takeover. We are talking about militancy in, in some regards. And postmillennialism doesn't inherently, but it can for sure, facilitate such a matter. And because people are frustrated, because people are angry, they have drifted and they have gravitated toward this specific view. Now, my job this morning is not to defeat postmillennialism. That's not the goal. It's actually far more pastoral. It's all about expectations. It's all about expectations. Endpoints determine midpoints. If we believe the world is moving in a certain way, getting better and better, then that dictates what we love, what we appreciate. It dictates our strategy. It dictates what we invest in. And if you believe that the world is your home and you're going to make it more your home, then you're going to want to love and get more comfortable and more entrenched in this world. And when the world becomes more and more hostile, you become afraid and you become angry because this doesn't look like it's going according to plan. If you believe that the world is going to get better and better because Christ will, bring in, uh, Christ will come after you bring in his kingdom, and then you have setback after setback after setback, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be frustrated. Endpoints determine midpoints. It is crucial for us to know what God has ordained for us and where things are going and the nature of the plan so that for one, we have a realism, and we don't interpret what is happening as if God has failed, but only that he has succeeded. We need to understand what is going forward so that when we look at things, we don't believe that God has lost control, but rather that he's in control. And we have the tools to understand it. We need to understand the end point so that in the midpoint that we're living in now, we actually invest our lives in what matters and we don't get distracted by the things of this world or even things that appear to be noble and lose what is actually most valuable, most strategic, and thereby commanded by our Lord. We need to make sure we understand what is coming ahead of us so that we live correctly. And that's why God gave us many, many passages from 2 Timothy 3, which says that things will grow from bad to worse, not better and better and better and better, bad to worse. In 1 Timothy 4, it says in the last day, there will be a great apostasy. Things are not going to get better. Things are going to get worse. And we need to understand that. And a passage on top of all of those passages that intentionally makes the point is Daniel 
chapter 8. As we have been studying the book of Daniel, we have seen that God is sovereign over the nations, that he reigns supreme, and he cannot be rivaled, and he cannot be challenged, and therefore his plan and his sovereignty will be ultimately and culminatively expressed in his son in one definitive moment in the future. But between now and even between Daniel's time and that glorious eschatological moment in the end, There will be nation after nation. There will be trial after trial. There will be opposition after opposition. There will be pride upon pride and arrogance upon arrogance. So much so that when Daniel sees the vision, while we, and maybe particularly me, because I just love the glory of Christ and you love the optimism that it exudes, you are just captured by that one moment that reigns over them all, the one moment that we are waiting for. But Daniel reacts differently. He has great alarm. He has great alarm, alarm and great alarm, because he knows, yes, the end is glorious, but you got to get there. And getting there is not easy, especially since in his years of life already, it's been very hard. How could it get worse than what I am right now? How are we to survive that? And that is something, brothers and sisters, that I think we all face. When we hear times are getting bad to worse, we think, How could it get any worse than it is now? It's so bad. What, how do we handle that? Daniel 8 has the answers. Daniel 8 has the answers. In fact, Daniel 8 is intended to address these very issues. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, we talked about this last week. It is revelation that is given to I, Daniel, in his humility, that he is so in awe of it. And he says that this is a direct answer to those questions because it continues the vision that was given in Daniel 7. He also says it's a vision, which means, as opposed to a dream, that it is something geared for God's people. And it is for this very reason that in Daniel 2 through 7, the text was written in Aramaic, but in Daniel 8 verse 1, it starts to read in Hebrew because God's point is, now I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking to you. If you want to know how you live, if you want to understand what is ahead of God's people, God now starts to talk with them, and that's why Daniel 8 and following exists. Put it this way, Daniel 8 isn't just God doing an encore of saying, let me give you some more prophecy because why not? It isn't that. It is, if you're wondering how everything I just said should shape your life. Let me give you more detail to help you know that, to help you know how now shall you live. And that's the point of Daniel 8. And there are a lot of lessons to be learned in Daniel 8. It is truly encouraging. We learn that God is completely over these times. We learn that God will restrain how much evil happens. We learn that God always preserves his people and he will intervene to preserve them. So even when we are thinking, it's just getting bad to worse, how can you survive that? You can and you will survive it. Why? Because our God is involved in this and he has made no mistake to put you there and the God who has put you there and ordained all this will get you through all of it according to his promises. And then God in his design of Daniel 8 intentionally, what he has done is he has set up a near prophecy that sets up for a far prophecy. We will see this even today a little bit. He has designed Daniel chapter 8 and the events of what we will later learn of an individual named Antiochus Epiphanes to imitate to prefigure what will happen in the eschatological period of the Antichrist. This is deliberate foreshadowing. This is deliberate prefiguring. And God's point is this. If Antichrist and Antiochus are so similar, of course, Antichrist is worse, but there are so many similarities. And if I can sustain my people in the time of Antiochus, then you know, and it is a settled fact, and it is a reality of this world, not just some abstracted promise, but concretely sure, I will get my people through the end. I will get my people through the end. And don't miss this. 
And if I can get my people through the two worst situations of all history, then I can get them through anything else. I can get them through anything else. And that is the message of Daniel chapter 8. God has given a near prophecy to project a far prophecy and everything in between to give his people the maximum assurance that no matter what comes our way, our God will see us through. Our God will secure us and there will be nothing that separates us from him and he will hold us fast and he will present us blameless in the end. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. By the way, you might say, well, what does Daniel, when did Daniel 8 come true? It came true in the intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, you know the fulfillment of parts of Daniel 8. That's the celebration, that's the holiday we call Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah, in that way, is biblical. When I was growing up, all my friends liked Hanukkah more than Christmas because you got more presents. <laughs> Many days worth more. That's not the real reason why you want to celebrate Hanukkah, brothers and sisters. When we see people celebrating Hanukkah, what we should remember in our minds and our hearts is this. If God got them through that, and it's a fact. It's a fact. It's so factual that we celebrate it every single year. Walmart, Ralph's, the entire capitalistic conglomerate of the United States recognizes that it's a fact. It's that factual. Then God will get his people through the very end time. And if God can get his people through that, he can get them through anything. He can get them through anything. And we must always remember this. Daniel 8 is so encouraging to the soul. But all of that presumes this. If God has to get you through something, that means what he has to get you through is hard. And we need to remember, and this is what Daniel 8 opens with, that yes, times will go from bad to worse. There will be difficulty. Do not anticipate differently. Do not come to life thinking things will just get better and better, and that's what I believe is going to happen for me and my life and my circumstances and for the international scene. Do not come with that expectation. Can God be merciful? Of course he can. Can he restrain? Of course he does. But we don't anticipate that when he has promised us otherwise. When he has promised us otherwise. This is not about pessimism at this point. This is about realism. Biblical realism. And so this is what we need to understand. And in Daniel chapter 8, verses 2 through 8, there are two major points that we can understand. It's very simple. You could put it this way. You have a time of conquest, that's point one, and you have a time of conflict, a time of conquest and a time of conflict. Here's another way to put it. Things are bad and they get worse. Another two points. I had to do one because by the rules of preaching, you have to alliterate. But the other one, bad and worse, I think they just make a lot of more sense too. So Whatever floats your fancy, just remember the message. And with that, let us talk about the first point, the time of conquest. Things are bad. In verses 2 through 4, in verses 2 through 4, what we begin to understand and what God answers Daniel on is what's going to happen fundamentally in this time. Is this going to be a good time, an okay time, or a bad time? And God is going to lay that clearly out of what Daniel and his people are about to face. Verse 2, Daniel says, And I saw in the vision, and as I was looking, I was in Shushan. And I, and I was in not only Shushan, I was in the citadel, which is in Elam, in, in that region, in that province. And I was looking in the vision, and, and I was right upon the Ulai Canal. As I mentioned last time, God transported Daniel not only to a different place, but actually to a different time. And it is powerful. And that is what the revelation of God does. And this is absolutely vivid. 
He is in this place called Shushan, which is the capital, the major city of the Medo-Persian Empire. But by this time and at this time, if you walked from where Daniel was to this location, it would be a desolate place. God transported him in both time and in space to something in the future. And that is emphasized because, notice it says, that he, he saw the citadel, which is in the Elam Empire, or the, uh, the Elam province. You say, what is that? Well, in Daniel's time, there was no province called Elam. It wouldn't exist. The empire of Elam fell years before Daniel and wouldn't come back until about 536 B.C., after this period of time. There is no province called that right now. There is no empire. The Elamite empire had dissolved. And so God has transported Daniel in time and space and politics, and he's placed him in, a, in such vivid clarity in the place of what Shushan will become, and it's amazing. Do you see that he, he records, that is Daniel, he is at the citadel, the citadel. Remember, at the time that this is being written, at the time that God revealed this in real time, there was no citadel there. There was no palace there. But in the end, in the future, when Daniel is looking, there will be a citadel. And Daniel can see it with vivid imagery. It, there is, this is an immaculate palace, a palace that has no rival at that time, something that is absolutely beautiful. In fact, it is so distinctive, it has its own name. It's called the Citadel, the Citadel. And it is so distinctive, let me put it this way, that later books of the Bible that were written during the time of the Medes and the Persians, that's what they call it. That's what they call it, the book of Esther. The book of Esther. Esther was written during the times and occurred during the times of the Medes and the Persians. Guess where the king lived? He lived in the citadel. Guess what in the book of Ezra? What do they call where the king lived? The what? The citadel. Everyone's calling it then. Years later, the what? The citadel. Who called it first? Daniel, prophetically. He knew exactly what it would be called. He knew how immaculate it would be. Why? Because God transplanted him in space and time. That's real time travel, right there. And he was able to see it with his own eyes, understand exactly what it is, and write it down before anybody would have ever bothered to think of it. That is what's taking place here. It's as if he's watching television of the future and its history. That is what is going on in this situation. Likewise, Daniel says, that as he's standing and seeing in the vision, he was along the Ulai Canal. Now, the Ulai Canal is no normal canal. It's no normal wash like we're used to in California. The thing is 800 feet wide. This is not your normal ditch. This is not a normal river. This is a massive, massive structure which wasn't built till later. And Daniel can see everything. All the major features, all the major structures. It's as if he was living in the moment that the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks were fighting. That's the kind of clarity he had. Now, for one, do you understand the accuracy and the, and the amazing quality of the Word of God? It takes you to a different place and a different time. It takes you with such detail that history books write about it as if it was history, even though this is prophecy. That is how if God desires to reveal that way. He can. With that degree of precision, with that degree of accuracy, with that degree of vividness, that is the nature of the word of God. But you might say, why does God give Daniel such clarity, such vividness at this time? It's simple. God is showing Daniel, this is how real it will be. I am not giving you a fairy tale. I am not giving you a parable. I'm not giving you an abstract idea. This is about what will happen. It's a real situation in real time, in real place, with real people, with real, with real issues. That is what is taking place. And Daniel needed to understand everything that is about to take place. And we need to understand along with him the weightiness of it. This is real. This is not fiction. 
This is not just abstract. This is not just a hypothetical. This is real. This affects Daniel. This will affect his people. And by extension, what God does here and the precedence he sets, it affects all of us. It's that real. So what is this real situation? Verse 3. He lifts up his eyes and he sees. And behold, there is a goat. There is, excuse me, a ram. And in this vision, you have a ram. Now, in Hebrew, it actually literally says one ram. One ram. You say, why do you need to know that there's one of them? Because one, there's only one. And two, we need to remember that rams, like sheep and other animals, they're herd and flock animals. They, they're always together. They're group animals. And so to have a solitary one is unique. And it means that this one stands out above the rest. This one has more potential than the rest. This one has more uniqueness, more power, more size. For some reason, it is by itself and it can be by itself. It doesn't rely on anybody else. It is independent and it is therefore higher than anything else. And along that line, it doesn't just have more potential to have power and might. Notice what it says. It is standing. It exudes that power. It doesn't just have the possibility of showing power. It actually has and executes such might. Let me put it simply this way. Human power and human arrogance in this world is not weakening. That is what God has already showed to Daniel. Human power and human arrogance is not weakening. It's strengthening. And this is going to be real. This is not abstract. God has already indicated who this will be, who this symbolizes, because this ram is standing by the canal. So we know, hey, you're in Shushan, the capital, the future capital of Medo-Persia. You're by the canal that they made. You're in the Elamite Empire, which is part of their conglomeration eventually. We know this is going to be a real nation. And there will be a real nation that has so much potential, that has so much actual, and in fact, it will have all that power concentrated. Notice in verse 3, it says this, that it had two horns, two horns. Now, this is where we must really put our thinking cap on, because horns are powerful objects. They are used to gore people with fatal effect, and because of that, it is a symbol of power. It is often a symbol of rulers. And so what you have here is the combination not only of two kings or kingdoms, but two kings even, two rulers. And this shouldn't surprise us because the language of horns was found in Daniel chapter 7. There in the fourth beast, it had 10 horns, and then one horn pokes out and captures all the other horns. Why is why are horns emphasized here? Because you are to make a connection between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, just like Daniel 8 explained. There are going to be horns. Now, let's be very clear. Daniel 7, where you see the horns, that's on the fourth beast. Beast number four. However, if you look at Daniel 8 and you're wondering, well, what beast number is this corresponding to Daniel chapter 7? You would see, hey, this, this beast doesn't have seven horns or so. It has two of them, just two. And one, as it says in the text, is longer than the other or higher than the other. Well, where do you have something where the two is emphasized and it's lopsided? Well, in Daniel's dream about the statue, you had a, a, a nation of silver, which had two shoulders. And then in this dream in Daniel 7, you had a nation that was represented by a bear who had one side higher than the other side. And now you have a nation represented by a ram that has two horns. Everyone see the connection. Well, that metal and that beast in Daniel chapter 7 is not beast number 4, but beast number 2. 2. Daniel 8 is about Medo-Persia, which is nation number 2, metal number 2, beast number 2. But the animal that is had the horns in Daniel 7 is beast number 4. Simple math lesson, even more basic than addition or subtraction. 2 is not the same number as 4. They are two different numbers. 
And there's a reason why I emphasize this. Because on the one hand, Daniel 8 is not talking about the same nation as Daniel 7 with the horns. One is like the other, though, because they all have what? Horns. Do you remember me saying that the nations that will be symbolized in Daniel 8, they are the precursor. They are the prefigurement. They are the foreshadowing of the Antichrist kingdom. Yes? Well, how did we get that? Because in Daniel 8, these horns are made to look like, even though they are not the same, they look like the horn in Daniel chapter 7. That is what is going on. God has given his people a taste of what will happen in the future. And so this nation, even though it might not be the Antichrist nation, but it's still a formidable one, because notice, its horns are long and longer. They are mighty, and they are powerful. And so what you have is you have in this situation a nation that will arise. This nation is above anything that Daniel has ever seen before. It's one ram. It is standing on the canal because this nation is both actual in its power, and it is real in its nationality and ethnicity, and it's got might. It's got long and longer horns that even typify and anticipate the Antichrist of the end. And on top of all of that, notice it's also very fast. This, this animal is just moving so quickly, so quickly throughout everything. Now, what we have is an animal that is distinct, potential, real, national, centralized, and the question is, how will all that power be used? Verse 4. Verse 4. I saw. And what happens? This animal, he is goring or butting on the west side, the north side, and the south side, all over, uh, over everything. And nothing that's alive can stand before him. Okay, let's break this down. How will this power be used? Will it be used for good? No. It'll be used for bad. And we know that. We know that. How do we know that? Well, for one... It's going to be inescapable. Look at verse 4. This animal goes where? West and north and south. Where is he from? The north. So he's going everywhere. He's going everywhere. He is approaching everything from every single direction. You cannot escape. Sometimes we think, oh, yeah, maybe I can just move out of the zone where there's bad things. And, and that, there's, a, there's a limited scope of that, but ultimately, look, the way that the world will work, it goes bad to worse everywhere. You cannot establish a colony where there's goodness. You cannot establish a zone, an evil-free zone. That's not going to work. This thing is going everywhere. His conquest will extend everywhere. And not only is it inescapable, it's violent. The animal's not just running around. He's goring everything. He is aiming for violence and fatality. And on top of that, he's sadistic. This animal's undefeatable. Notice what it says. No creature can stand before him. This animal takes its stand, and no one stands before it. That's what you see here. And, and so because of that, anything it does and anything it desires to do it will accomplish. And so the sense that you get, because no one can oppose it, is now this is the new height of evil. This is the new height of violence. You can't get any worse than them. That is how one would feel seeing this animal. It is the lone and solitary and high animal that is so ferocious and so violent, there can be nothing worse than them. And furthermore, notice the next line, and there is no one to deliver from his hand. There is no one to deliver from his hand. Sometimes, on the playground as a little kid, you just pray that another bully comes to bully your bully. <laughs> because then... Someone will take him out. This is the common, common, classic tension that we can have. But here is, here's what God says and reveals to Daniel. There is no one to save you. There is no one to intervene. When you are on the playground hoping for the bully to bully the other bully, 
you have some hope. This situation, you have none. You have none. You have no inkling that there can be any deliverance. You have no inkling that this will ever come to an end. And so when you have such an individual, he is inescapable, and he is violent and wicked, and he's undefeatable, and there can be no intervention against him, and you have no hope, what does he do? Notice the ending of the phrase. He does according to his own will, whatever he pleases, and he magnifies himself. What this ruler does and what this nation does, both king and resulting kingdom, he just does whatever he wants, and everything he wants is what? Evil. This is a wicked man because he has no restraint of conscience, and he not only has no restraint of conscience, there is no one to check what he does. And he just gives himself wholly. He is fully abandoned to wickedness fully abandoned to wickedness. And not only that, he's arrogant against God himself. He magnifies himself. The word magnified comes from the word great. And as we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, it is one thing after another of exuding man's greatness against God. That is what this man does. And we, just to put it in concrete terms, because obviously we are dealing with a nation that is Medo-Persia, you guys know this. Why do you think a king has a lion's den? to kill people. There is lots of record of the king of Medo-Persia doing terrible acts to people, skinning them alive, burning them in boiling oil, chopping off their heads for fun. This is a cruel, cruel king. He does a lot of things for sport. In Esther, you can read about a king that is a Medo-Persian. And yes, the guy is a drunkard, and the guy certainly is a womanizer, but the guy also authorized, while drunk, the genocide of the entire people of Israel. He's a Hitler. That is this kind of person. He is a person who does whatever his heart, what, desires. In fact, here's what's absolutely fascinating. When you read Esther chapter 1, it says this, and the king told all his people to do according to their pleasure. The very same phrase here. That's this king. So, Daniel will interpret this dream and this vision soon enough, but he first gives us the picture so that we get the picture of what is going on, so that we understand the lesson, so that we understand what the character and what the nature and what the proclivity of this situation is, that we understand the truth of it before we understand the historicity of it. Both are true and both are important lessons. And what Daniel and what God has shown Daniel through the imagery that is there is this. You will have a time, Daniel, just like you suspected in Daniel 7, when you and your people will encounter something very real and very historical, and it will be all this power, power you've never seen before. You thought Babylon was bad? You have not seen the kind of power that we are talking about, and you will not be able to escape it. It will be so violent, and it will be so unstoppable that you will think it's the worst thing that has ever been, and it could never get worse than that. And not only that, you will have no hope within it. Have a good day, you know? <laughs> that is what God has said to Daniel. And you might, and let me ask you this Does that sound familiar? You might say, That's how I feel right now. That's how I think about it right now. Yeah, I know this is specifically about Medo Persia, but when I look at the news and when I look at life, I can't imagine how it could get any worse than this and how anybody is going to turn it around. I don't, I don't have any kind of hope that that's going to happen. Exactly. That's why he gave the picture. Remember? Remember, this is supposed to mirror not just what's happening in Medo-Persia, not just what, what's going to happen in the circumstances surrounding a guy named Antiochus who will come soon enough, but the Antichrist at the end, yes? It'll be true then, and it'll be true in the end, which means what? It's true every single point between then and now and forever. That is what is taking place here in Daniel 8. And so that is why the picture is given to remind you and to remind me, this is the way the world will be. We should have no illusion that the world is going to be a great and good and happy place. 
like I said at the beginning, the reason that people get angry and get afraid is because they think something's going to happen and it doesn't. And so they get frustrated. If things go exactly the way you expect, you're not angry, you're fine. We need to actually understand what's going to take place. The reason that people get fearful is because they're afraid of losing something they think they have. But when you realize you weren't ever promised it, and you don't actually have it, and you don't actually own it, and you're not entitled to it, then it's easier to let go and not be afraid because you know what you really should have and do have. We need to have our expectations correct. Daniel has already instruct, or Daniel has been instructed by God. This is what's awaiting him. And in doing so, God has revealed the very character and disposition of the world all the way and culminating in the time of the Antichrist. Things will be bad. When we see these things and when we watch the news, we cannot think this is crazy and out of control. We need to say, praise the Lord. That's exactly what should have happened. And everything is going according to plan. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's morally justified, but it means it is under control. This is not just a time, though, of conquest. This is a time of conflict. That's what we see in verses 5 through 8. To put it simply, it goes from bad to what? The worse. And the question that Daniel may have now in his vision, as it says in verse 5, I was trying to discern, I was trying to understand this, is maybe, maybe it'll get better. Maybe there will be somebody who comes in and turns it around. We can start a resistance movement, a political machination, and we can overthrow these Medo-Persians and make the world a better place. This is exactly what they taught me in kindergarten. No, I mean, this is, this is what people hope for, and the question that Daniel has, and the question that needs to be answered is, is are things going to get better? Are things going to get better? And God says, let me help you, Daniel. It'll get worse. In fact, look at the opening of verse 5. I, I love this. It's so bad and good at the same time, depending on how you look at it. He says, as I was pondering as I was trying to understand. Daniel can't even grasp how bad things are going to get with the, with the ram. And then God just says, and let me just stick another one in. Things will go so intense and things will be so overwhelming. You can't even grasp the evil that you're dealing with before things will actually turn worse than that. That is how bad it will be. And notice what you have is you have a goat. It says a male goat shows up. Immediately, you already know things are going to go from bad to worse because a ram is fearsome. Single ram, fearsome and formidable. A goat, more powerful, more stubborn, more wicked, more, more arrogant than any other animal in the playpen of the farm. That is what is going on here. And not only is this a goat, and it's not only a male goat, which exudes all those characteristics. Literally in Hebrew, it says this, the male goat of all male goats. This is the ultimate male goat. And Daniel's just looking at that thing and thinking, oh no, now what's going to happen? This is the ultimate male goat, the ultimate most violent, the most stubborn, the most willful, the most malicious and sadistic animal. And it's powerful. It's very powerful. And notice, it's not only has power, but it's influential. It just comes. And it says this, it comes from the West. So why the West? Because it actually will, as we will see, come from the West in a second. But the word for here for West is different than the word Westward that was used earlier. This is from the far West, beyond the reach of Medo-Persia. What is God saying to Daniel? This is a power you've never seen before. And Daniel said, I, you already said that about the other animal, which was already power, more powerful than, than Babylon, Medo-Persia, that is. And God says, actually, this is more powerful than Medo-Persia. You haven't even seen how bad it can come yet. And on top of that, it just moves across the entire earth. It moves across the entire earth. It has such influence. This is talking about Greece, the nation of Greece. And the nation of Greece is exactly that. It is powerful. It is violent. 
It is influential. Think about how Greece has influenced. You could simply put it this way. Before Greece, you had, even biblically speaking, Eastern influence. Babylon, Medo-Persia, all in the East. Starting from this point to this very day, what do we have? We don't, call, we don't talk about Eastern civilization. We call it Western civilization. That's what we study in school. And speaking of which, that's how influential the Greeks are. They shaped our education. They shaped our military. They shaped our tactics. They shaped our philosophy. They shaped our technology. They shaped our culture. They even shaped food. You can buy Greek food even to this day. That demonstrates the reality of the situation. This is a, this is a nation just like it was depicted here that just moves like a sea across the entire world. It will dominate, it will influence, it will control. That's what we have. That's what we have. And not only was it so influential, not only was it so dominant, not only was it so powerful and a category unto itself, it's really, really fast. Notice what the text says, that it didn't even touch the ground as it ran. That's what it says. It doesn't touch the ground as it ran. Have you ever seen those cartoons when people's legs move so fast, it just looks like they're invisible? Um, that's what you have here. There is a swiftness to this. And on top of that, the previous animal had two horns. This one has how many? One. More concentrated power. Not split between two, all in one. And this is Alexander the Great. And he is great. And he is fast. Taught by Aristotle, he's aggressive. He just destroyed city after city, as we've heard before, without stopping. In 10 years, he took over the world. He's a person who just, whatever the most direct route is, and whatever you have to do it, you, it will be done. So if it's the most direct way to destroy a nation that is in the, or a city-state that is in the sea by building a causeway and a bridge and to do it really well so that even parts of it exist to this day, he'll do it. And then once he destroys it, does he wait to occupy it? Does he wait to settle it down and to rule it and to establish a political infrastructure? No, he just goes on to the next thing. He just goes from city to city to city to city. He's running nonstop, just like it says here. Again, the Bible is so precise, but again, what it demonstrates is this is a new level of evil. This is a new level of might and aggression and violence and speed. And just to help us to, and help Daniel to understand, this is exactly what Alexander the Great and what they wanted. They wanted to be the best at being the worst. In verse 6, it says this, So he came unto the ram with two horns, and I saw it standing there. Here is the ram, and it's the only thing that's keeping Alexander the Great, so to speak, from taking over the world. And the question is, maybe you can coexist. You know, if you don't have a lot of ambition, you just say a big bad guy's over there. I got plenty of territory. I'm fine. I just stay where I am. But that's not what Alexander the Great does, according to this prophecy and in history. What does it do? It runs at it with all of its what? Wrath. It is not content to just be tied for first place. It wants to be the only one. That is the lust for power, and you can see that what he wants, he will get. Verse 7, and I saw it strike the side of the ram. And here, because it was very enraged against it, this is the, describing in detail a battle known as the Battle of Issus, where actually Medo-Persia collapsed unto the Greeks. Did you see how it said it struck the side of the ram? In the battle, it's amazing to think about this. And again, the Bible is just amazing with its detail. The Medo-Persian line was stretched out very, very far, as far as, in a sense, the eye could see. The Greeks didn't have as many force. So what they did is they went right into the main flank of the line, right into the center to attack the king of Medo-Persia. That's what happened. Well, the, what does it look like? You're just striking right into the side of the ram the side of the army. It's a massive, in a sense, mid-flank maneuver. That's what's going on. It matches exactly what happens. And by the way, because Alexander the Great and his elite forces charge so fast, 
they broke through the line and they broke to the place where the king and his special bodyguard, kind of like the secret service was, and those people started to flee. And when those people started to flee, the entire Medo-Persian army collapsed. And at that moment, Greece turned the tides that day so that they became the number one world power. Right here, you have the picture. You have the exact picture. You have the exact battle strategy laid out before it ever happens. And notice, he was mad. Why? Because the Medo-Persians had enslaved and tortured so many Greeks, they were out with a vengeance. And he struck the ram, and notice what it says here, and we will need this for later. He broke the two horns into pieces. That's how fast and furious he shattered them. And so we know, hey, this guy has more power than anything before. But notice this. This is fascinating. And the, and the ram had no strength to stand before him. Before, no one had any strength to stand before the ram. Now, the ram has no strength. And so it's just helpless. It's just hapless. It's a victim, in a sense. And it demonstrates how high Greece's power is. If your power is so high that you make the other guy who used to be the superpower, now the weakling, now you know how great he is. Now, you might think, the guy is already toast. He has no power. Don't do anything. Just let him lie there. He's already humiliated. He can't do anything against you. What does Greece do? Notice the next phrase. What does he do? He casts him to the ground. Did you catch that? Throws him down and then what? Tramples him. Because Greece isn't out just to win. He already won. Greece isn't out just to defeat a foe. He already defeated him. Greece is out to torture and kill until there is no more. Greece is bloodthirsty for revenge. That's what you have here. That's the mentality. It's a new paradigm of evil. It's a new paradigm of evil. And notice what the last phrase is. And there was no one to deliver him from his hand. What does that show you? What Medo-Persia was, Greece now has taken over, and Greece is infinitely worse. It's not getting better. It's getting what? Worse. You might say, man, this is a depressing message. I know. <laughs> Want some more depression? Here we go. Verse 8. <laughs> and this goat of goats, he magnified himself exceedingly. We already thought that the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians, they said they were great. They said they were blaspheming against God. They exuded the might of man. Greece does it more. Greece does it more, more than anyone. They have that. But, but don't miss this. Don't miss this. Notice, tucked in the middle of this, so important, tucked in the middle of this, at his strength. Not when he became weak, not when he was kind of on the decline, not when he had a bad day, not when he was hitting a low point. This is Alexander the Great at his strength, at his peak, what happens? The great horn is what? Broken. Now, this is so crucial, so crucial that we pay attention to this phrase and dissect it carefully. What happened to that great horn? It was what? Broken. What did Alexander the Great do against the Medes and the Persians. It says what? He broke their horns into pieces. The same word is used here. What is the point? Alexander the Great said, look how great I am. I broke them. They are weak. They are nothing. I'm superior over them. And what did our God say to Alexander the Great? You are no different than them. You broke them because you thought you were better than them. In the same exact way, I still break you. Here's what we must understand fundamentally. And this is the first lesson of this phrase. We must understand that, yes, things will go from bad to worse. And people will look more powerful than ever, more violent than ever. Their power will be concentrated more than ever. That's all true. And that's how we perceive things to our naked eye. And there is truth in that perception. However, before our God, they are all what? The same. They all die the same way. 
They are all broken the same way. There is no distinction between them. And so even in situations where there is persecution, and even in times when it goes from bad to worse, and even in times when we are looking evil in the face, so to speak, what we must remember is they are just a man. Those are just men. They are just people under the sovereign God. And they may look like they have the upper hand for a time, but they are just men. And those whom they killed, they will be killed in the same way because our God is sovereign over them all. The horn that broke somebody else will be broken because in the end before God, they are the same. Furthermore, along that very line, notice it says this, that great horn was broken. Who broke the horn? It doesn't mention it. Because this is providence. This is actually in Hebrew and Greek what we call the divine passive. Often God doesn't just say, I did it. He just puts it in the passive. It was done. And who did it? God did. Because that's how life often works. You don't see his hand, but he is what? Acting. You know, the irony of Alexander the Great, so massive, so great, so powerful, military genius, machines of war, and all of this might and power, physical specimen that he is. You know how he died? A bacteria killed him. A single-celled organism topples Alexander the Great. What does that show you? You aren't that great. When one itty-bitty thing I can't even make my hand small enough to do the itty-bitty thing. can kill you. That tells you everything you need to know about human power. It isn't as mighty as you think it is. Our God did that as a lesson. He broke Alexander the Great. And that happened in history. It's on record. We know that that's how he perished. Now, sadly, I wish that was the conclusion because that's where we would, our heart wants it to be. But notice afterwards, it says this, four conspicuous horns rose up to the winds of heaven. What replaced Alexander the Great? More what? Kings, who were equally just as what? Arrogant. And all of that is moving forward. What is God's point? I do have control over evil. I do have control over everything. I do have sovereignty. There is no one who threatens me. And for that very reason, I'm telling you, things go from bad to what? To worse. And even after Alexander the Great dies, there's four more of them. So it goes from worse to worse. That's what's going to happen in our world. We need to understand that. But that doesn't mean God is not in control. That actually means God is in control. And brothers and sisters, there are lessons to be learned from this. Lots and lots of lessons. Yes, we need to know our world goes from bad to worse. And we don't get bent out of shape when it happens. In fact, We rejoice, not because we believe it's good that sin prevails, but because our God is sovereign. And yes, we aren't post-millennial for this very reason. That is true. And we cannot forget that our God is absolutely in control. Everything goes according to his plan and nothing defies his will. But at the same time, all of this should help us to focus on what matters. Brothers and sisters, if you think you can save the planet, if you think you can make this place a better place, If you think, oh, I'm just going to change the world and take over Santa Clarita. That's what my job is. You have misplaced your priorities because we know things will go from bad to what? Worse. What we want to do, brothers and sisters, is not just make this place a better place. We want to make it the best place by preaching the gospel. That is what our goal should be. Why is it most strategic to do that? Why has God called us to do that? Because he knows things are not going to get better, but they're getting what? Worse. And the only solution for worse and worse and the worst people is to have them saved unto the Christ who is alone the one who can make all things right. We point to him. That's our job. Do not get caught up in distractions of this world when everything is going to plan. Follow the plan of God and prioritize what is right by being those who witness to his son. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we repent of the times when our hearts and our emotions have been so wrapped up in the world, we have forgotten that you have a plan for this world. And with that plan comes priorities and perspective. And your plan is, and it is established in history, that things will go from bad to worse. That is the trajectory of this world. And we give you thanks that you are sovereign over it and that you are sovereign in it.
that you will preserve your own and that no man is so great that he topples your sovereignty. You can even use the smallest of small things, a single-celled organism, to devastate a man in proof that you alone reign. Help us to remember that and to trust in you and to find refuge in your sovereignty as you are our rock and our redeemer. And may it be that our lives are those which count not distracted by faulty promises and faulty anger and faulty aspirations and expectations, but by the true expectation that there is one who makes things right. And our highest joy and our highest honor is to point to him. In your name we pray, amen.